Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Chapter 6, Bits of Evidence, Part 1. Martin gestured for Police Chief Berg to be very quiet, stoop lower, and go slower as he approached. Bending over was not easy for Berg. His bruised rib was healing slowly. Ah, I see them, Berg whispered. I've got people all around them, none directly across from each other, if it comes to shooting. I really want to take them alive if we can. We need to find out why they came this far north. Martin nodded. He looked around to get Mara's reaction, but she had vanished. Berg took a position behind a big oak. Berg's radio clicked twice, softly. That's the last of our other people. They're all in position. Guess it's time to flush us up some quail. Berg leaned his head out from behind the tree. Hello by the river, he shouted. Police Chief Berg here. We'd like to talk to you, boys. He ducked his head back behind the tree. Through the tangle of brush, twigs, and branches, Martin could see a swirl of activity amid the yellow fern fronds. The faint sound of murmuring voices mixed with shuffling and scraping sounds. They were all awake now. No use pretending you're not there, shouted Berg from behind his tree. He wasn't going to make the same mistake again of standing in the open. We've been following you up the river. You mean Mara has, thought Martin. Guess she's part of we, uh, sort of. Not that it matters to the exes. They're found out. It was an excellent psych approach. No more sounds were rising up from the ferny hollow. There were, however, wafts of some seriously ripe body odor floating up from the river. Personal hygiene had been a challenge for everyone, after the power went out and the water became scarce. Everyone had grown accustomed to their neighbors smelling a bit less than fresh. The stink was particularly strong. Come on out where we can see you, shouted Berg. We just want to talk. A quick succession of gunshots shattered the forest silence. Hunks of bark flew off of the tree Berg stood behind. A few shots were fired by unseen men surrounding the hollow. The hoodlums fired in all directions. Well, they can't have carried much ammo with them, Martin said, as he lay on the ground. We can wait them out. Berg nodded. Hold your fire, he shouted into his radio. The hoodlums continued to fire. A few of the surrounding men had not received the ceasefire order and continued to place shots into the hollow. Martin saw at least two of the men trying to sneak out along the river. More shots from Berg's men sent them back into the hollow. Fern bits flew into the air. Martin had his carbine trained on the hollow, but never saw anything to aim at. Suddenly, all was silent. One full minute felt like it took an hour to pass. Ten minutes felt like all day. There was no sound. No movement in the hollow. Did we kill them all? Martin asked. 
Berg shrugged. Maybe. Can't see why they'd be trying to wait us out. He held his radio up to his mouth. Move in slowly. Nobody exposed. Could be a trick. Martin covered for Berg, who rushed forward to another tree that was a bit too small to conceal him. He gave Martin a thumbs up. Martin motioned for Andy and Carlos to stay down, for the time being, before he pushed through the brush to another tree trunk. Little by little, the two of them descended the gradual slope toward the ferny hollow. Martin could hear other pairs of men advancing by bounds as well. Carlos and Andy didn't stay put. They crawled up behind Martin. This is all the closer I want to be, said Berg. I still can't see anything. He turned to Andy. Hey, skinny guy, let me borrow your stick a minute. Andy beamed at being included in the action. He handed Berg his homemade bow staff, giving a grin and a nod to Martin, as if to say, See what a good idea it was to have me along? Berg reached out from behind the birch tree he was hiding behind and raked the stick back and forth like a giant weed whacker across the dried ferns and bracken. Beneath the stems were legs and boots, all motionless. Cover me, Berg said. He stepped out from behind the birch, his pistol at full extension, aimed at the motionless legs. He stood for a minute, trying to gauge if he saw any signs of life. With a little wave of his head, he motioned for the others to approach. Andy picked up his bow staff and cleared away more ferns to either side. The four hoodlums lay in a jumble, but close together. One had a visible head wound and a lot of blood around him. The second laid face down with a large exit wound in his left shoulder. The body odor was particularly strong almost masking the metallic smell of blood. The other two lay face up, mouths open, eyes staring at the sky. Whoa, said Andy in awe. Ah, di did you get them all? He poked with his bow staff at the man laying face down. D don't get too, began Berg. Suddenly, one of the staring dead men grabbed the bow staff and pulled Andy down on top of the dead men. In a split second, the not-dead hoodlum jumped up to his knees and grabbed Andy from behind. He pulled out a very long knife and held it to Andy's throat. Back off! the man growled. He had an X tattooed between his eyebrows. Back off or I slit this idiot's throat! In the momentary stunned silence, the man rose to his feet, hauling Andy up with him. He was a foot taller than Andy, but kept crouched behind him as human cover. All of you! the man shouted. Put your guns on the ground. Toss them far from you, or I kill this dude. The hoodlum was counting on that tendency of civilized men to value one of their own more than stopping the bad guy. Everyone looked at Berg for direction. Uh, do as he says, said Berg. He tossed his pistol to the right, so it landed amid some ferns. Take it easy, guy, he said to the hoodlum. We, we don't want to see anyone hurt. Yeah, right, scoffed the man. I've got the X. This chump is my insurance. You all put your guns down. All of you. I mean it. He pushed the knife into Andy's skin, sufficient to draw a little blood. Andy winced and gasped. Go on, everyone. Do, do like you said, repeated Berg. We can all come out of this okay. 
Reluctantly, the others put their guns on the ground. Martin lowered his carbine by the sling at arm's length. We just want to talk to you, Berg held his hands open toward the man. No talk. I'm out of here. I'm taking this chump boy with me until I can't see any of you. Make a move before that, and he dies. Got it? Andy gurgled something. The man took a few steps back along the narrow river bank. Where does he think he's going to go to? wondered Martin. As soon as he lets Andy go, we'll be after him like hounds on a fox. Uh, yeah, if he lets Andy go, alive. The man grinned at his victory of the one over the many. The one knife over a dozen guns. He glanced at his feet to check his footing, then suddenly stood tall. His arms loosened around Andy, who fell into the water. A circle of dark red began to grow on the man's belly. He twisted his shoulders as if to turn, but couldn't. With a jerking movement, he staggered forward half a step. Behind him stood Mara. She had just pulled her spear out of the man's back. The man looked down at his hand clasped over his belly. He held a handful of dark red blood. Rage filled his eyes and contorted his mouth. He turned his knife toward Mara and squared up his footing for a lunge. Mara stepped back and braced herself with a half-crouching stance. She held her blood-stained spear poised for a thrust. The man began to leap at her but stumbled on the mossy rocks. He fell at her feet, face down. She raised her spear vertically, high, with both hands. Wait, called out Berg. We want to! Mara plunged the spear down with her full weight behind the swing. Uh, talk to him, finished Berg. She pinned the hoodlum to the riverbank like a moth in a bug collection. The man quivered once, then went limp. Before Mara retrieved her spear, she knelt beside the dead man's head. She pulled her own knife from its sheath. She grabbed a fistful of the man's tangled brown hair at the top of his head and sliced out a silver dollar-sized patch of the man's scalp. She wiped her blade across the man's coat to clean off the blood. Mara stood, tucked the long brown hair into her belt, the red disc swinging at her hip. It was then that Martin took a closer look at what he had always thought were animal tails tied to her belt, hunting trophies. They were trophies, of a sort, but not animal tails. Martin swallowed hard at the realization. Mara had some stories to tell. He didn't know if he would ever ask. He looked at Berg to gauge his reaction to the bizarre scene that they had just witnessed. Berg's mouth hung open. He glanced at Martin as if to ask, Did that really just happen? A quick look around showed that others were similarly stunned. Oh, man, sputtered Andy. He stumbled to his feet in the shallow river and shook off the excess water. Boy, that was way more adventure than I was expecting, uh, you know? Am I right? I mean, for a while there, uh, my whole life was flashing before my eyes, uh, just like they say in the movies and stuff. Uh, but this was for real. Andy wrung out the corners of his jacket. Oh, I was thinking that meant that I'd get to see a highlights reel, with some cool stuff, you know, like parasailing in Cancun. Of course, I never actually did that, but it would have been awesome to watch. Yeah, but no. I was like watching my mom uh, feeding me oatmeal with that little blue spoon. And I'm like, oh, dude, this guy's got a wicked huge knife at your throat. And you thinking of oatmeal? I mean, what's up with that? 
if it wasn't for Mara here. Andy turned to face his savior, but she and her spear were gone. Only the dead hoodlum, face down on the riverbank, remained. Martin's eyes scanned the wooded hillside. He thought he saw a pine branch near the ridge sway one last oscillation before coming to rest. Berg cleared his throat and readjusted his jacket. Well, that was uh, unusual. He knelt to roll the dead man onto his back. The X tattoo on his forehead was clearly visible between the bits of leaf and pine needles stuck to his face. He's got the X, so killing him is legal and all. Still, I had hoped to question one of these guys. Yeah, said Robert, who stood behind Martin. Why are they up this far? Plenty of easier pickings in the border towns. There's nothing in these woods for them to raid. They were following the river, Martin said, and traveling by night. They were going somewhere, probably not here. Well, there's no other here farther upstream either, said Robert. This little river goes up through a couple of mill ponds and pretty much ends at North Pond up near town. Nothing but swamp after that. Let's search em, announced Berg. Maybe they got some other clues in their pockets. Working in twos and threes, the men pulled each of the dead hoodlums up the gentle slope to have room to work. They searched all their pockets, turning their clothing inside out, looking for hidden pockets. Their backpacks were similarly turned inside out. Uh, nothing interesting, said Robert. A half-eaten granola bar, pocket knife, and six loose rounds of three fifty-seven. No papers, no maps, said Martin. He, Andy, and Carlos had searched the hoodlum that Mara had dispatched. What's this thing? asked Berg's deputy, Dave Stuba. Everyone gathered in a circle around the third dead hoodlum. Stuba placed a small box on the man's chest. Bits of moist soil clung to the gray plastic. Other than a small rocker switch on one side, it had no outward features. I saw that guy had dirt on his hands said Stuba. See? Even fresh dirt under his nails. Why would a guy who's being shot at stop to dig in the dirt? Figured he was burying something. I saw fresh dirt over there. This thing was under an inch of dirt and leaves. Look here, on the back. It has a thin little wire coiled up and taped down. But there's no plug on the end of it. Is it a bomb or something? asked someone in the ring of men. Almost everyone took a step back. Yeah, I don't think so, said Stuba. It's smaller than a deck of cards and too light. Can't be much of anything inside. The ring of men closed back in. Well, it's the only thing they had that wasn't food, clothing, or a weapon, said Berg. Let's take it back to town and have a closer look at it. Stuba, pick out four guys to help you bury these guys. Up over that rise, keep them out of the drainage of the river. Carlos, called Martin. Go get our shovels, back by the tree stumps. That'll help. Those not chosen for burial detail formed a ragged single-file line back to the fire road that led back to Old Stockman Road and town. I guess we'll finish pulling stumps another day, Martin said to Robert, who walked ahead of him. Robert nodded without turning around. Andy jogged up beside Martin. Oh, that was like... So totally awesome, right? Oh, you gotta believe me now, right? That proves a cosmic soulmate is a thing. 
I mean, one minute I'm almost crispy toast, and then, bam, freedom! Did you see my soulmate in action? Martin recalled the sight of Mara scalping the dead man, the cold look in her eye. Uh, yes, I did. Oh, she swooped in to save me. Oh, her soulmate, beamed Andy. That's how it is with us soulmates, uh, you know. Can't fight the plasma, man. Telling you, it's like science. A dozen men stood around a small table near one of the tall windows in the town hall meeting room. Walter sat in a chair opposite the window. Before him lay the little gray plastic box. The cover was off, laying to one side. Walter wore a plastic headband with two magnifying glasses attached to it. With a plastic pick, he prodded at the circuit board inside the box. Hmm, uh, homemade construction, uh, single circuit board, uh, hand-soldered connections. It's only got this one battery, triple uh, A, nickel cadmium, Walter said, as if someone else was writing down his forensic comments. No one was. It can't be a regular radio, Stuba said. It's got no speaker. Ah, quite right, quite right, Walter nodded without looking up. It's got no way for anyone to listen to a signal. Yeah, no jacks or Bluetooth or nothing. No tuner mechanism. Just this one little oscillator chip. I'd guess it's only a transmitter. A single frequency, uh, not a receiver. Walter uncoiled the thin antenna wire between his hands. Yeah, less than a meter long. Uh, that makes it likely a UHF device. Uh, yeah, but for what? asked Martin. Like a tracking beacon? asked Berg. You think someone was tracking where this group of X's was? Keep tabs on their progress? Progress to where? someone asked. We don't know, complained Berg. I'm open to theories. Yeah, I don't know about tracking, said Walter. Yeah, little battery's only got a hundred milliamp hours. Transmitting takes juice. Wouldn't have lasted long. A couple of days at best. Yeah, being UHF, it's basically line of sight. I'm not sure the signal couldn't have gotten anywhere while they was a-traveling in the woods. Yeah, not much for range in this little rig. A locator beacon for someone else to find, maybe? Offered Martin. Limited range suggests that whoever would be looking for this thing wouldn't expect it to be far away. Wait, said Berg. Like a saboteur? You think someone local is in on this? I'm not suggesting that, said Martin. I'm just thinking out loud. Some folks down in Harstead think it was an insider that set their fire. But I heard they ran out right after they heard the thud sound. They said they never saw anyone running away or anything, added Robert. Probably too focused on the fire, said Berg. Time delay fuse or something, offered another man. Well, this sure as heck ain't no bomb, Walter pointed to the little gray box. It had nothing flammable inside. Right, Martin continued. So that thing doesn't start any fires. What if it was supposed to mark a location and someone else would come along later with the firebomb, like at night? Follow the beacon, plant the bomb. Maybe a different set of X's has the bomb. Why? objected Mike Wilder, the perennially skeptical town selectman. Why would one group of these X's risk getting killed just to place a beacon? 
If they got to their target to lay a beacon, they could just as well plant the firebomb itself. I don't know why they did it this way, snipped Martin. All these guys had on them was this little beacon. They didn't have any firebombs. That means, or at the very least, someone else has the bomb. Martin fumed. It doesn't matter if you think their plan was improbable or inefficient. It was their plan. They obviously screwed up by not checking with you first. Calm down, calm down, you two, said Berg. Arguing isn't solving this riddle. Berg stroked his chin. What we do know, it's the feds down in mass that are sending these goons up here. The feds wouldn't mind one lick if we ran out of food and had to sue for peace. Maybe they offer these exes some sort of amnesty if they can pull off their mission successfully. Maybe they promise them booze and drugs. Who knows? Gotta be something in it for the exes. That's a lot of supposing, said Wilder. Robert leaned in from the outer row of men. There's still a question of where they were going. What was their target? Like I said before, those guys were following the river up to North Pond, which is only a quarter mile from here. Could be some place right around here was their target. Here? Someone in the back said. There's nothing here in the middle of Cheshire worth all that trouble to burn it down. The general store has been empty for months. The church? Parsonage? Town hall? Hey, now, Wilder held a finger in the air. I think it might be it. Town hall. Oh, Wilder, said Berg. You're not going to get on another rant about that Quinn guy, are you? Yeah, darn right I am, said Wilder with a little nod. I know you and Jeff think I'm obsessed, but think about it for a minute. Those fire bombings further south made sense in a sort of tactical way. They set fire to food stashes in Salem, Hudson, Wyndham, then recently in Harstead. How do you think those exes knew where the stashes were, huh? What makes you think that Quinn guy knows where all those towns had their food stored? How do I know how he knows? Wilder was clearly impatient with questions about his theory's weak point. Maybe there's something to those stories about vehicle sounds in the night, but no headlights. Maybe he's got spies. The other day, somebody was telling me about hearing a low-flying plane at night. Maybe that's how he does it. Oh, Wilder. But why try to bomb our town hall? asked Stuba. We don't store food here. No, but Quinn was furious at Cheshire for refusing to bow and scrape to him in his rules of occupation, remember? said Wilder. Blamed us for other towns not caving in, too. And you think he's got a grudge against Cheshire, said Berg. His tone was dismissive, as if he had heard it many times before. He's doing this out of spite. Oh, you can scoff if you want, but I think he's been trying to even the score on us for a long time. He's been sending trouble our way all winter, giving those gang members guns, promising those killers rewards. They cause trouble here in town. Who do you think talked them hoodlums and badass into attacking us? Now who's doing a lot of supposing? That's a bunch of effort to go through just for a grudge, said Berg. Egomaniacs go to a lot of trouble, countered Wilder. They don't care what it takes, and think about it. Not a week after we shut down Badass, the feds began sending their scum across the border to make trouble in our backyard. 
You think it was just some coincidence of timing? I don't. Whose idea do you think it was? Martin could easily imagine Quinn as the inspiration, if not the instigator, of New Hampshire's troubles. It did seem like Quinn was eager for New Hampshire to accept federal aid and his own personal overlordship. Martin was glad that Wilder was the one voicing the thoughts, however. Said out loud, eh, the theory sounded a little crazy. Why don't we put Wilder's theory to the test, offered Martin. How about if we turn on that beacon thing in the parking lot of the post office? It's near the center of town, like they'd expect, but it's in the open. Lots of places we could hide and watch, see who shows up, grab them when they do. This chapter turned out to be harder to do than most, at least for the vocals. As the story progressed, through all the other books, I had tried to give the various characters voices that were different from each other. Like, for the three selectmen, I gave Landers a more typical broad New England accent. Haddock got a rounder, milder tone. Wilder had a deeper, raspier sound. That worked reasonably well. At least, I thought it did. One listener said that he had a hard time telling the voices apart. Yeah, well, maybe they sound more different in my head. Anyhow, when I got to this chapter, I realized that I had inadvertently put in three characters together who all had a deeper, raspier voice. Wilder, Chief Berg, and Robert. Oh, swell. I tried to vary them as much as I could. Wilder, I gave a bit faster and sharper. Berg, I made a bit lower and slower. And Robert, kind of, well, whatever was left. I'm not so sure it worked. So, if you had some trouble telling those characters apart, I apologize. I'm really hoping this doesn't keep happening. I'd like to give a shout-out to Sergeant Jeff and Todd for buying me some coffees, and Anne for her coffees and her comments on the episodes and her comments on the draft chapters of Book 6. I do appreciate the support from you monthly members and coffee buyers. Thanks. <laughs>